Hey, just dropping in to say we're now on Patreon. If you want to support the project, head on over to patreon.com slash legallistening, where you can unlock some fun bonus content with me, Zach, and some special guests. Thanks so much for all your support. Hey, welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. So today on the podcast, we have another uh, split decision from the Supreme Court. We have the Queen and Goldfinch, which has a majority concurring and dissenting opinion. It's a recent one. It's from 2019, and it deals with the concept of a friends with benefits relationship in a sexual assault. So we'll put a content warning right up the top that this does deal with sexual assault. It's what the decision is about. So obviously take care while listening. So Zach, what, what do we know about this one? So this is another interesting one. I think we find a lot of these sexual assault um, Supreme Court of Canada decisions, they're often all split because of how nuanced and complicated the issue of sexual assault can be. And so this one, the Supreme Court is wrangling with the idea of basically the friends with benefits situation, which I think um, kind of related to this, but I think Michael Spratt in the docket said, it's funny how sometimes courts have to break down what friends with benefits means. You and I know what it means. We could say it in (laughs) passing like, oh, these two people are friends with benefits and we'd move on. But the court needs to provide a definition to what friends with benefits is and they talk about it in like the context of like a like a joint like a joint is a rolled up piece of paper filled with cannabis that has been broken up in a buster etc 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 so putting that to the side and going (laughs) back to the case this one um it's interesting because we get back to talking about the twin myths which has been around for what 30 years no the twin myths is older in law yeah the twin myths are older than me because the twin myth, yeah. <laughs> the twin myth came out like the year I was born, I believe, or the year after. So I'm going to be 33. So they're at least that old. So a long time our twin myths have been around in law officially. Yeah, exactly. And it's and again, here we are relitigating. Oh, yeah. Not the same issue because if it was the same issue, it'd be a moot point. But effectively, it comes across to being close to the same issue that was litigated almost 30 years ago. Yeah, and it's weird. It's, you know, certainly the majority in this decision um, brings up that point, as they often do. They will bring up the decision in, or the decision in Seaboyer, which discusses the twin myths and say, like, look, we've been doing this for a very long time. And it is clear that there are, you know, there is still wide misunderstanding as to what these things are. Um, I guess we should probably clarify, Zach, what are the twin myths? <laughs> oh, man, twin myths. Uh, you're gonna have to give me a minute because I can't remember. I can do those. I remember it. <sighs> I can do the them. Problem if you is, want. I don't. I don't do a lot of. You can do them. Okay. I don't do a lot of sexual assault stuff yeah. anymore. But I remember the general gist of what the twin myths are. But for me to explain it in a way that'd be cogent for our listeners would probably make them all cringe until they die. <laughs> so one of them is um, just because someone has consented in the past means that she's more likely to consent this time. Right. So that's certainly a twin myth, which you can see how would come up with friends with benefits relationship. And then the second one is that just because someone has consented to a woman has consented to sex in the past makes them less credible, like less worthy of belief, which if you consider that previously, you know, sexual assault accusations had to be corroborated by another person when they were made by a woman. So if you sort of put it in that historical framework, it makes sense that that's a myth because this myth was sort of baked into the law before, you know 
30 some odd years ago with Seaboyer that really brought the twin myths to the forefront. And there is certainly a lot of re-engagement in that reasoning here in this decision. You know, you have a majority that says evidence of a friends with benefits relationship is never going to really fly under Section 276 because it's just not relevant. It's not relevant specifically because of the twin myths. And then, you know, you have a concurring opinion that's like, well, it's certainly not relevant here, but we can envision a circumstance where it might be, you know, in a specific case, if the facts suggest that it should be relevant, it may be. And then you have a dissenting opinion that's just like, it's definitely relevant 100%. You need context to the relationship. So, you know, even 30 odd years later with a, you know, a very different court that existed at the time of Seaboyer, we're still arguing about these same things. And certainly in um, Barton, which we also put up on the pod, a lot of the same reasoning is discussed as well and not everybody agreeing as well again. And Goldfinch is referenced. And yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's certainly a live issue. It's a very old issue, but it continues to be a very live issue. Yeah. And you can see a lot of the times when and how the twin myths would be applied from, if you, if you step back, you can see why they're attractive. And because they're attractive, we understand why we need to be guarded against relying on them and using them in law, because they're fundamentally flawed at the root. Because it just, again, they're myths, they're made up, they don't actually speak to the case at hand, and they need to be guarded against. Yes. So fortunately, here we have another decision discussing <laughs> and why they're dangerous. Yep. And, you know, it's the the court obviously certain certainly isn't uh, united on the way that even they interpret it. Right. And these are, our, you know, our, our best and brightest legal minds. And even they don't agree on how this stuff should be interpreted. So, yeah. So Goldfinch is excellent if you want um, a refresher on 276 and the twin myths. And anything around that, if you deal with anything related to sexual assault, again, you know, uh, keep in mind the context when listening and take care while listening. And we hope you enjoy. The Queen and Goldfinch, Supreme Court of Canada. On appeal from the Court of Appeal for Alberta. Appeal from a judgment of the Alberta Court of Appeal setting aside the acquittals of the accused and ordering a new trial. The judgment of Justices Abella, Karakatsanis, Gascon, and Martin was delivered by Justice Karakatsanis. Our system of justice strives to protect the ability of triers of fact to get at the truth. In cases of sexual assault, evidence of a complainant's prior sexual history, if relied upon to suggest that the complainant was more likely to have consented to the sexual activity in question, or is generally less worthy of belief, undermines this truth-seeking function and threatens the equality, privacy, and security rights of complainants. In 1992, Parliament enacted Section 276 of the Criminal Code to protect trials from these harms. Nearly 30 years later, the investigation and prosecution of sexual assault continues to be plagued by myths. One such myth is that sexual assault is a crime committed by persons who are strangers to their targets. In fact, in 2016 to 2017, Statistics Canada found that over 80% of reported sexual assaults occurred between people who knew each other in some way. In other words, most complainants will have some kind of relationship with the accused. This case requires the court to review the balance between, on one hand, admitting evidence of a sexual relationship that may be fundamental to making full answer in defense, and on the other, protecting complainants and the integrity of the trial process from prejudicial reasoning.
Here, the accused sought to introduce evidence that he and the complainant were friends with benefits, a sexual relationship. He argued that the sexual nature of the relationship provided important context, without which the jury would be left with an artificial impression that he and the complainant had a platonic relationship, rendering consent improbable. To be admissible, relationship evidence that implies sexual activity must satisfy the requirements of Section 276 of the Criminal Code. In my view, the evidence here did not meet those requirements. Introducing evidence of the sexual nature of the relationship served no purpose other than to support the inference that because the complainant had consented in the past, she was more likely to have consented on the night in question. It was therefore barred by Section 276, Sub 1. Nor could it satisfy the conditions of admissibility under Section 276, Sub 2. While the sexual aspect of the relationship was evidence of specific instances of sexual activity, it was not relevant to an issue at trial. A Section 276 application requires the accused to positively identify a use of the proposed evidence that does not invoke twin myth reasoning. In other words, relevance is the key which unlocks the evidentiary bar, allowing a judge to consider the Section 276 sub-3 factors and to decide whether to admit the evidence. Bare assertions that such evidence will be relevant to context, narrative, or credibility cannot satisfy Section 276. The evidence in this case should not have been admitted and a new trial is required. I would dismiss the appeal. Part 1. Facts. Mr. Goldfinch and the complainant met, dated, and lived together for seven or eight months, after which the complainant ended the relationship. At some point during the ensuing months, the two resumed contact. Although they each described the relationship in various ways, both ultimately agreed that their relationship could be described as a friends with benefits. On the evening of May 28, 2014, the complainant called Goldfinch, who then drove to the complainant's house, picked her up, and brought her back to his place. Goldfinch testified that she had called him a few days earlier, asking for birthday sex, something the complainant couldn't remember if she had done. Goldfinch stated that he did not 100% expect to have sex that evening, but that was our routine. In his view, this was a typical evening, in that the complainant would call in the middle of the night, want to come over, and we'd end up going to bed together. Goldfinch lived in the basement of a small older home which he shared with a roommate. After arriving at the house, Goldfinch and the complainant shared drinks and conversation with the roommate while watching television. Goldfinch testified that during this time, he mouthed, quote, I'm going to fuck you, to the complainant. He said that she responded with a smile. The complainant couldn't remember whether this exchange had occurred, but acknowledged it might have. A few minutes later, Goldfinch invited the complainant to go downstairs. The complainant testified that she told Goldfinch nothing was going to happen, meaning that she did not wish to have sex. Goldfinch denies ever hearing this. Downstairs, the two sat on a couch together. At some point, they shared a consensual kiss. After the kiss, Goldfinch suggested they go to bed. From this point on, the two accounts of the evening diverged radically. According to Goldfinch, after the consensual kiss, he followed the complainant into his bedroom where they each removed their own clothes. He and the complainant then discussed which side of the bed they wished to sleep on. Following this discussion, the two engaged in consensual foreplay and brief intercourse. 
He fell asleep, and hours later, she woke him up complaining that he had struck her on the head in his sleep. He was annoyed, told her to leave, and called a taxi using her phone. The complainant testified that she responded to Goldfinch's invitation by telling him she didn't want to have sex. He then grabbed her arm and dragged her into the bedroom. She explained that Goldfinch's demeanor changed, just like something snapped, and she felt scared. She removed her clothes because he told her to. He pushed her onto the bed, struck her in the face, pushed her shoulder so hard that she believed her arm was broken, and told her he was going to have her just like everyone else. Following the assault, she dressed and called a taxi from her cell phone. She called the police shortly after she arrived back at her home. Both the responding officer and a forensics officer who met the complainant at the hospital confirmed swelling on her left cheek and elbow. Part 2. History of the Proceedings Subpart A. The Voir dire. Justice Pendlechuk, Court of Queen's Bench of Alberta, January 23, 2017. The defense requested a voir dire to determine if evidence that the complainant and Goldfinch were friends with benefits was admissible under Section 276 of the Criminal Code, submitting that it was highly artificial to describe the relationship without reference to sexual activity. Counsel advanced that Goldfinch did not intend to rely on twin myth inferences, but failed to identify any other inference or relevant use beyond context. The Crown was willing to adduce evidence that the two knew each other for four to five years, dated and lived together for seven to eight months, and then broke up. The Crown was also prepared to adduce evidence that the two remained friends and that the complainant would occasionally come to Goldfinch's house and stay overnight. The trial judge accepted that friends with benefits meant that they were friends who from time to time got together to have sex. She agreed that keeping this evidence from the jury would lend an element of artificiality to the proceedings and harm Goldfinch's right to make full answer and defense. She concluded this relatively benign evidence would not prejudice the complainant's personal dignity, right to privacy, or personal security if admitted in this limited form. Subpart B. The Trial. Justice Pentelchuk, Court of Queen's Bench of Alberta, February 9, 2017. The trial unfolded before a jury over four days in February 2017. Before examining the complainant, Crown Counsel sought clarification regarding the permissible scope of questioning with respect to previous sexual activity, noting that she would not have led this evidence had the Section 276 application not been granted. The trial judge stated that she had envisioned that the contextual information identified in the voir dire would be reduced to an agreed statement of facts. But because the parties had not done so, the trial judge reiterated her expectation that any questioning would be extremely limited, following fairly narrow confines for the purposes of context and to simply let the jury know the nature of the relationship. During direct examination, the complainant initially denied that she and Goldfinch were ever more than just friends, following their breakup. Shortly thereafter, however, she admitted that she had been to Goldfinch's bedroom to have sex on various dates for quite a while after the relationship ended. Before the cross-examination began, counsel for Goldfinch also sought clarification regarding the permissible scope of questioning. The trial judge agreed that the Crown had opened the evidentiary door and gave the defense permission to ask questions regarding, quote, the number of times, the time frame relative to the relationship proper breaking up, and the last occasion prior to these alleged offenses, end quote. During cross-examination, when defense counsel suggested that the two had slept together dozens of times, 
the complainant estimated that they had slept together 15 times following the breakup. Following the complainant's testimony, the trial judge gave this limiting instruction to the jury. Quote, you have heard evidence that the complainant and Mr. Goldfinch dated and then briefly lived together. At some point after their relationship ended, the complainant and Mr. Goldfinch did on occasion get together and have sexual relations. This evidence provides you with some context for their relationship, but you must not use this evidence to help you decide that, because the complainant and Mr. Goldfinch had sexual relations in the past, that the complainant is more likely to have consented to Mr. consented to what Mr. Goldfinch is alleged to have done on May 29, 2014. And you must also not use that evidence to help you decide that, because the complainant and Mr. Goldfinch had sexual relations in the past, she is less believable or reliable as a witness in this case. All right? Thank you. End quote. Goldfinch repeatedly testified, both in chief and in cross-examination, to the frequency of his previous sexual interactions with the complainant, characterizing the evening as typical or routine, indicating he had her many times and stating that when we're together, the sex was expected, I guess, from both of us. During her final jury charge, the trial judge gave extensive instructions regarding consent, highlighting that consent must be contemporaneous and concerns only the subjective state of mind of the complainant. She reiterated the same limiting instruction she had given mid-trial, clarifying that while the jury could not use the evidence of sexual activity to infer the complainant was less believable or reliable, it could consider any contradictions regarding the nature of the relationship in assessing the complainant's general credibility the jury found Goldfinch not guilty of sexual assault. Subpart C, the Alberta Court of Appeal. Appeal Justices Streckoff and McDonald, with Appeal Justice Berger dissenting. The Crown appealed Goldfinch's acquittal on a question of law pursuant to Section 676 Sub 1 Sub A of the Criminal Code. Section 276.5 of the Criminal Code provides that a determination respecting the admissibility of sexual activity evidence is a question of law. The majority, Appeal Justices McDonald and Streckoff, characterized the Crown's appeal as follows. Quote, the Crown appellant submits that the trial judge erred in law by admitting the evidence pursuant to Section 276 of the Criminal Code of the prior sexual relationship between Goldfinch and the complainant. End quote. The majority held that finding evidence provides context is insufficient to demonstrate relevance for the purposes of Section 276, Sub 2. Thus, they concluded that the trial judge failed to connect the relationship evidence to any issue relevant to Goldfinch's defense. The majority also rejected the argument that the evidence was relevant to Goldfinch's credibility or as context. In their view, permitting the defense to lead evidence of previous sexual activity to prevent the jury from concluding that consent was unlikely was no different from admitting that same evidence to establish that the complainant was more likely to consent. Given the admissions the Crown had been willing to make, there was no risk that the jury would be misled into thinking Goldfinch and the complainant were strangers. The only inferences to be drawn from the evidence of prior sexual activity could be those relying on the twin myths. In the majority's view, limiting instructions could not cure the fact that the jury had heard inadmissible evidence for which there was no permissible use. They allowed the appeal and ordered a new trial. Appeal Justice Berger, writing in dissent, accepted that the evidence was not adduced to support the twin myths. He found that the trial judge had properly exercised her discretion in admitting what she characterized as relatively benign evidence 
in order to preclude misapprehensions on the part of the jury. In his view, Goldfinch's right to make full answer and defense required a candid revelation of the true nature of the relationship. For Appeal Justice Berger, it was better to trust the jury to rely on the limiting instructions mandated for evidence admitted under Section 276 than to leave the jury to speculate on what lay beneath Crown admissions for which no such instructions would be required. Part 3. Analysis This case asks whether evidence of a relationship with an implicit sexual component engages Section 276 of the Criminal Code, and if so, when such evidence may be admitted. Subpart A, Section 276, Text, History, and Objectives. Section 276 balances a number of trial fairness considerations, seeking to exclude evidence known to distort the fact-finding process while protecting the rights of both the accused and the complainant. Section 11D of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees the right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty according to law in a fair and public hearing by an independent and impartial tribunal. This guarantee includes the accused's right to make full answer and defense, itself crucial to ensuring that the innocent are not convicted. For this reason, the law of criminal evidence begins with the general principle that all relevant and material evidence is admissible. The right to a fair trial does not, however, guarantee the most favorable procedures imaginable. The accused's right to make full answer and defense is not automatically breached whenever relevant evidence is excluded. A fair trial also requires that no party be allowed to distort the process by producing irrelevant or prejudicial evidence. A person's general character and past behavior provide context for understanding specific events. However, such evidence often draws on pejorative or judgmental generalizations. This is problematic because bad character is not an offense known to law. Our legal system neither punishes nor protects people on the basis of lifestyle, character, or reputation. To protect against propensity reasoning, trial judges must balance the probative value of such evidence against its prejudicial effects. As a general rule, Evidence led by the defense is excluded only where the potential prejudice substantially outweighs its probative value. Moreover, because only the accused is being judged at trial, exclusionary rules generally do not prevent the accused from adducing evidence of another person's bad character. Historically, no limits were placed on the defense's ability to adduce evidence of a complainant's prior sexual activities. Such evidence was routinely used to malign the character of the complainant distort the trial process, and undermine the ability of the criminal justice system to effectively and fairly try sexual allegations. Subjecting the complainant to humiliating or prolonged examination and exploiting assumptions about communication, dress, revenge, marriage, prior sexual history, therapy, lack of resistance, and delayed disclosure was commonplace. These tactics shifted the focus away from the accused and especially put the complainant on trial. In 1982, Parliament enacted a blanket exclusion of all evidence of sexual activity subject to limiting exceptions. The provisions were intended to counter the twin myths that women with sexual experience are more likely to consent to sexual activity or are less worthy of belief. Because sexual assault was highly gendered and underreported, Parliament also sought to encourage the reporting of sexual crimes.
In Seaboyer, this court struck down that blanket exclusion, holding that Parliament had cast the net too wide, impairing the accused's right to a fair trial. Improperly excluded evidence critical to the defense included evidence going to 1. Honest but mistaken belief in consent, 2. Bias or motive to fabricate on the part of the complainant, 3. Physical conditions establishing the use of force, and 4. Evidence of a consistent modus operandi, such as threatening to accuse someone of rape as a means of extortion. Parliament responded to this court's ruling in Seaboyer by essentially codifying the case's principles in Section 276 of the Code, because, quote, at trials of sexual offenses, evidence of the complainant's sexual history is rarely relevant and its admission should be subject to particular scrutiny, end quote. Parliament's recent amendments, reaffirming the exclusion of evidence relying on the twin myths, reinforced the provision's continued importance. The mischief Parliament sought to address in enacting Section 276 remains with us today. Sexual assault is still among the most highly gendered and underreported crimes. Even hard-fought battles to stop sexual assault in the workplace remain ongoing. As time passes, our understanding of the profound impact sexual violence can have on a victim's physical and mental health only deepens. Parliament enacted Section 276 to address concrete social prejudices that affect trial fairness as well as concrete harms caused to the victim of sexual assault. Throughout their lives, survivors may experience a constellation of physical and psychological symptoms, including higher rates of depression, anxiety, sleep, panic, and eating disorders, substance dependence, self-harm, and suicidal behavior. A recent Department of Justice study estimated the cost of sexual assault at approximately $4.8 billion in 2009, an astonishing $4.6 billion of which related to survivors' medical costs, lost productivity due in large part to mental health disability, and costs from pain and suffering. The harm caused by sexual assault and society's biased reactions to that harm are not relics of a bygone Victorian era. It is against this backdrop that Section 276 must be interpreted and applied. Subpart B, Examining Relationship Evidence under Section 276. Section 276 protects the integrity of the trial process by striking a balance between the dignity and privacy of complainants and the right of accused persons to make full answer and defense. This appeal asks us to examine that balance as it concerns evidence of a relationship from which sexual activity can reasonably be inferred. As Justice Gonthier explained in Derrich, Section 276 is, quote, designed to exclude irrelevant information and only that relevant information that is more prejudicial to the administration of justice than it is probative, end quote. Sections 276 sub 1 and 2 operate together to achieve this objective. First, Section 276 sub 1 sets out an absolute bar against introducing evidence of the complainant's prior sexual activity for the purpose of drawing twin myth inferences. Where an accused seeks to introduce such evidence for some other purpose, that evidence is presumptively inadmissible unless the accused satisfies Section 276 sub 2. To do so, the accused must identify the evidence and its purpose with sufficient precision to allow the judge to apply Section 276 sub 2 and weigh the factors set out in Section 276 sub 3. 
I proceed first by considering when such evidence engages Section 276 sub 1. I then address two requirements of Section 276 sub 2, which require particular attention in this case. One is the evidence of specific instances of sexual activity, and two, what qualifies evidence as relevant to an issue at trial. One, Section 276 sub 1. Turning to the first question, Evidence of a relationship that implies sexual activity clearly engages Section 276 sub 1. Section 276 sub 1 bars evidence of a complainant's previous sexual activity tendered to support the twin myths. Such evidence is not probative of consent or credibility and can severely distort the trial process. In barring such inferences, the provision affirms the equality and dignity rights of complainants and aims to encourage reporting of sexual assault. The risks that evidence of a relationship which implies sexual activity may be used to support twin myth reasoning is clear. Consider the first myth, that a complainant's prior sexual activity may support an inference of consent in a particular instance. Rejection of this myth and its link to relationships is intimately connected to the modern understanding of consent. Unlike 1983, the fact that an accused was married to a complainant was sufficient to legitimize sexual assault. Indeed, rape was defined as non-consensual sexual intercourse between a man and a female person who was not his wife. Today, an accused may no longer argue that consent was implied by a relationship. Contemporaneous, affirmatively communicated consent must be given for each and every sexual act. Today not only does no mean no, but only yes means yes. Nothing less than positive affirmation is required. Consider also the second myth, that previous sexual activity renders a complainant less worthy of belief, or by extension, of full protection of the law. Before this court, Goldfinch advanced that social mores have changed such that being unchaste no longer discredits a complainant. However, this court has held that second myth is not limited to attitudes towards unchaste women. Moreover, while sexual activity generally carries less stigma than it once did, complainants continue to be treated as less deserving of belief based on their previous sexual conduct. The notion that some complainants invite assault and by inference do not deserve protection persists both inside and outside our courtrooms. This is implicit in the continued struggle to exclude inaccurate assumptions about what constitutes typical or unusual activity within a given relationship. Finally, the suggestion that sexual assault is less harmful to those who are sexually active or in a relationship is simply wrong. Even relatively benign relationship evidence must be scrutinized and handled with care. If the accused cannot point to a relevant use of the evidence other than the twin myths, Mere assurances that evidence will not be used for those purposes are insufficient. This case highlights the dangers of accepting such assurances. In this case, the obvious implication of the evidence of an ongoing sexual relationship was that because the complainant had consented to sex with Goldfinch in the past, in similar circumstances, it was more likely she had consented on the night in question. As I set out the sections that follow, the difficulty here was not that Goldfinch and the complainant had a relationship, but that Goldfinch could point to no relevant use for evidence of the sexual nature of the relationship. Such an approach misapprehends the nature of consent 
and is barred by Section 276 sub 1. 2. Section 276 sub 2. Taken as a whole, Section 276 seeks to protect the privacy of complainants, encourage the reporting of sexual offenses, and exclude evidence which fuels propensity reasoning. In pursuit of these goals, Section 276 sub 2 presumptively bars evidence of the complainant's previous sexual activity. However, in certain circumstances, the accused's right to make full answer and defense requires that such evidence be admitted. Under Section 276 sub 2, the accused must demonstrate that the evidence a. is of specific instances of sexual activity, b. is relevant to an issue at trial, and c. has a significant probative value that is not substantially outweighed by the danger of prejudice to the proper administration of justice. In determining whether these criteria are met, Section 276 sub 3 requires judges to consider a number of factors. These include the accused's right to make full answer and defense, the need to remove discriminatory beliefs or biases from the fact-finding process, potential prejudice to the complainant's dignity and privacy, and the right of every individual to the full protection and benefit of the law. Bare assertions that such evidence will be relevant to context, narrative, or credibility cannot satisfy Section 276 sub 2. A Section 276 application must provide detailed particulars, which will allow a judge to meaningfully engage with the tests set out at Section 276 sub 2 and sub 3. The accused must propose a use of the evidence that does not invoke twin myth reasoning. These requirements are key to preserving the integrity of the trial by ensuring twin myth reasoning masquerading as context or narrative does not ambush the proceedings. Sub A, Section 276 Sub 2 Sub A, Specific Instances of Sexual Activity Goldfinch suggests that relationship evidence is difficult to situate in Section 276 Sub 2 because it does not constitute specific instances of sexual activity. This position fails to recognize the purposes of the provision. The words specific instances of sexual activity must be read in light of the scheme and broader purpose of Section 276. The requirement that evidence be specific prevents aimless or sweeping inquiries into the complainant's sexual history. The accused must point to identifiable activity, but the degree of specificity required in a particular case will depend on the nature of the evidence, how the accused intends to use it, and its potential to prejudice the proper administration of justice. As Appeal Justice Doherty noted in L.S., specificity is required so that judges may apply the scheme in a way that effectively protects the rights of the complainant and ensures trial fairness. A purposive interpretation thus calls for evidence that is sufficiently specific to support a fully informed analysis, allowing the judge to circumscribe what evidence may be adduced and how it may be used. Evidence of a relationship that implies sexual activity, such as friends with benefits, as defined by the accused here, inherently encompasses specific instances of sexual activity. Requiring further details would unnecessarily invade the complainant's privacy, defeating an important objective of the provision. I agree with the statement in LS that specifying the parties to the relationship, the nature of the relationship, and the relevant time period satisfies the purposes of trial fairness. Those criteria are met in this case. 
Sub B. Section 276, Sub 2, Sub B. Relevance to an issue at trial. Turning to the second requirement, the importance of relevance to an issue at trial is highlighted by the procedural safeguards inherent in the Section 276 regime. Section 276.1, Sub 2, requires the accused to set out, in writing, the detailed particulars of the evidence to be adduced as well as the relevance of the evidence to an issue at trial. The application judge must be satisfied that the evidence is capable of being admitted under Section 276 sub 2 before ordering a voir dire. Judges who admit such evidence must also provide written reasons identifying the relevance of the evidence admitted. These procedural requirements reflect the fact that sexual assault prosecutions require heightened attention to the general principle that no party should be allowed to distort the process by producing irrelevant evidence. It goes without saying that the relevant issue cannot be one of the twin myths prohibited by Section 276, Sub 1. Neither will generic references to the credibility of the accused or the complainant suffice. Credibility is an issue that pervades most trials, and evidence of prior sexual activity will rarely be relevant to support a denial that sexual activity took place or to establish consent. Arguments for relevance must be scrutinized to ensure context is not simply a disguised myth. That said, a relationship may provide relevant context quite apart from any sexual activity. Where the relationship is defined as including sexual activity, as the trial judge held Friends with Benefits was here, it is critical that the relevance of the sexual nature of the relationship to an issue at trial be identified with precision. At the voir dire, Goldfinch described relevance in general terms. The evidence was necessary for context or to prevent faulty impressions. He was not merely concerned with dispelling the notion that he and the complainant were strangers. He specifically sought to introduce the sexual nature of the relationship. The trial judge was clearly alive to the possibility that this could be used to support the twin myths. In the end, however, the trial judge concluded that the evidence was relevant because it put the relationship in proper context. In coming to this conclusion, she relied on the Queen and Strickland. In that case, the trial judge reasoned that the probative value of contextual relationship evidence did not support an inference of an increased likelihood of consent, but rather could dispel an inference of the unlikelihood of consent. With respect, that is a distinction without a difference three paragraphs from Strickland illustrate why. Quote, it can be said that as a general rule, people do not have sexual intercourse with complete strangers. Generally speaking, sexual partners are involved in a relationship of some sort. What does matter is that, at some point, each partner has made an assessment of the other and decided that that person is a suitable person with whom to share this most intimate human experience. It is the fact that such a decision was made in the past by the complainant that is relevant. It is this fact that makes it at least somewhat more probable that a complainant would consent to having sex with a man with whom she had an existing sexual relationship than if no such relationship existed at all. To restate the language of Darich, the inference of an increased likelihood of consent does not flow from the sexual nature of the activity, but rather from the existence of a relationship in which that activity took place. End quote. It is difficult to conceive of a more clear instance of twin myth reasoning than the proposition 
that because the complainant had at some point consented to be intimate with the accused, it was more probable that she would have done so again. Moreover, while the case law provides examples of how evidence of previous sexual activity between an accused and a complainant may be relevant to an issue at trial, none of them apply here. Prior sexual activity may be particularly relevant to a defense of honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent. However, an honest but mistaken belief cannot simply rest upon evidence that a person consented at some point in the past. That would be twin myth reasoning. By definition, the defense must rely upon evidence of how the complainant previously communicated consent so that the accused can adequately support a belief that consent was expressed. Here, the trial judge properly instructed the jury not to rely on the friends with benefits evidence in evaluating the defense of honest but mistaken belief. Evidence of a sexual relationship may also be relevant when complainants have offered inconsistent statements regarding the very existence of a sexual relationship with the accused. There were no such contradictory statements from the complainant in the record at the time of the voir dire, and Goldfinch did not proceed on this basis. To the extent that Goldfinch sought to establish a pattern of behavior, the pattern here was hardly distinctive. It would not be admissible as similar fact evidence. As I have noted, the limited admissibility of similar fact evidence protects the truth-seeking function of the trial by excluding evidence that is overly prejudicial to the accused. By imposing the same evidentiary standard under Section 276, Neither the accused nor the complainant is denied equal protection of the law on the basis of lifestyle, character, or reputation. Finally, Goldfinch submits that the sexual aspect of a relationship may be relevant to the coherence of the accused narrative and by extension credibility. There will, of course, be circumstances in which context will be relevant for the jury to properly understand and assess the evidence. That assessment, however, must be free of twin myth reasoning. General arguments that the sexual nature of a relationship is relevant to context, narrative, or credibility will not suffice to bring the evidence within the purview of Section 276, Sub 2. That Goldfinch points to only two cases in which evidence was admitted as necessary context illustrates the rarity of such circumstances. In both of these cases, the evidence admitted was fundamental to the coherence of the defense narrative. It was not merely helpful context. This was not the case here. Before this court, Goldfinch sought to articulate specific issues which made the sexual nature of the relationship critical to his defense. He advanced that his narrative would be inherently improbable if the jury did not know he and the complainant were friends with benefits. Among other things, he argued that the evidence was relevant to the jury's assessment of the complainant's call suggesting Goldfinch owed her birthday sex, as well as to his testimony that the complainant smiled when he mouthed, quote, I'm going to fuck you. In my view, there is nothing about Goldfinch's testimony that casts him in an unfavorable light or renders his narrative untenable or utterly improbable absent the information that the two were friends with benefits. The complainant's request for birthday sex does not reflect on Goldfinch's character or behavior. As well, her reaction to his comment was a smile, hardly an indication that this behavior was beyond the pale of their relationship. Tellingly, the complainant did not deny the call, Goldfinch's comment, or the smile. Sub C, Section 276 Sub 2 Sub C. 
balancing probative value and prejudice to the proper administration of justice. The final step in the Section 276 analysis requires judges to balance the probative value of proposed evidence against the danger of prejudice to the proper administration of justice, taking into account the factors set out in Section 276, Sub 3. Both considerations must receive heightened attention, as the test serves to direct judges to the serious ramifications of the use of evidence of prior sexual activity for all parties. Balancing the Section 276 sub 3 factors ultimately depends on the nature of the evidence being adduced and the factual matrix of the case. It will depend, in part, on how important the evidence is to the accused's right to make full answer and defense. For example, the relative value of sexual history evidence will be significantly reduced if the accused can advance a particular theory without referring to that history. In contrast, where that evidence directly implicates the accused's ability to raise a reasonable doubt, the evidence is obviously fundamental to full answer and defense. This was not the case here. Goldfinch's right to full answer and defense would not have been compromised by excluding the sexual nature of the relationship. Indeed, having found that the friends with benefits evidence was not relevant to an issue at trial, it follows that it has no probative value. The evidence was relevant only to suggest that the complainant was more likely to have consented because she had done so in the past. Thus, the evidence went only to the twin myths, which, as Justice Gonthier held in Derrich, are not probative of consent or credibility and can severely distort the trial process. Subpart C, The Queen and Graveline the improper admission of relationship evidence from which sexual activity may be inferred risks infecting a trial with the precise prejudicial assumptions Section 276 is designed to weed out. In the case at Barr, the context laid out before the jury was clearly infected with twin myth reasoning. The jury should not have been privy to particulars regarding the frequency of the sexual contact or Goldfinch's testimony characterizing the evening as typical or routine. That evidence clearly engages twin myth reasoning by suggesting that because the complainant had typically consented to sex with Goldfinch in the past, she was more likely to have done so on this routine occasion. Admitting that evidence was a reversible error of law, which might reasonably be thought to have had a material bearing on the acquittal. Subpart D, Final Comments. Evidence of sexual relationships must be handled with care in sexual assault trials. Where a trial judge is concerned that the jury may improperly speculate about past sexual activity, it may be helpful to give an instruction specifying that the jury will not hear any evidence about whether the relationship included a sexual aspect. The instruction should explain that the details of previous sexual interactions are simply not relevant to the determination of whether the complainant consented to the act in question. No means no, and only yes means yes. Even in the context of an established relationship, even partway through a sexual encounter, and even if the act is one the complainant has routinely consented to in the past. Giving such an instruction would both reinforce the principles which guide a proper analysis of consent and mitigate the risk that jurors will rely on their own conceptions of what sexual activity is typical in a given relationship. How evidence is to be adduced may also impact trial fairness. Much of the evidence that ultimately came out of this case was adduced during the Crown's examination of the complainant and, to a lesser degree, its cross-examination of Goldfinch. 
This requires two observations. First, I note that Crown Counsel would not have adduced this evidence but for the 276 application, which I have concluded should not have been granted. While the parties did not have the benefit of this court's recent holding in Barton, I would reiterate that Crown-led evidence of prior sexual activity must be governed by the principles set out in Section 276 Sub 1 and Seaboyer. Second, proper management of evidence which falls within the scope of the Section 276 regime requires vigilance from all trial participants, but especially trial judges, the ultimate evidentiary gatekeepers. Leading evidence through an agreed statement of facts, as the trial judge suggested here, is one way to do so. I would dismiss the appeal. Thanks for the listen, friend. I hope you're able to enjoy that case and learn something new from it. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademeyer. Audio engineering by Anthony Rademeyer. Graphic design by Julie Lundy. Check her out online at julielundyart.com. And music done by Matt Rademeyer at radandkel.com. At Legal Listening, we're always open to new ideas, suggestions, and of course, guest readers. Check us out on Twitter at Legal Listening or online at legallistening.com. Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We'll catch you in the next case. Bye now.